This is the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. On this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Kazuhiro Oharazeki, lecturer in the Department of Foreign Studies at Setsunan University. Dr. Oharazeki is the author of Japanese Prostitutes in the North American West, 1887 to 1920, published by the University of Washington Press in 2016. Dr. Oharazeki, thank you so much for talking with me. Uh, thank you for having me. You published this book, Japanese Prostitutes in the North American West, 1887 to 1920. And so I've talked with other people about Japanese migration to North America, but I was hoping that you and I could talk more about what are the migrants who come from Japan to North America, what are they doing when they come over here? And what is the life like for the Japanese immigrants? So could you talk about who are these people who are coming over from Japan? Where do they come from in Japan? And, and how many people are we talking about? First, uh, let me call this woman Ame Yuki-san. Ame means America, and Yuki means going. Originally, uh, this word was coined by a uh, historian, uh, Yuji Ichioka, a Japanese-American scholar who did the first extensive research on the subject about 40 years ago. Obviously, uh, when he created this term, uh, he was aware of another word, uh, karayuki-san. Kara means China or foreign. Yuki means going. So women who went to China or foreign countries to become prostitutes in the Meiji Taisho period. Uh, both American and karayuki-san were mostly from Poor families, uh, daughters of farmers or you know, fishermen whose parents are experiencing hardships because of uh, heavy taxes, paying rents to landowners, and the economic turmoil in the Meiji period. Uh, these uh, women were ruled by procurers, uh, attracted by glorious stories of riches in their destinations. Uh, usually, uh, they received money in advance and agreed to go with them to work and pay off their debt uh, in the destination. One difference uh, between Karayuki-san and Ameyuki-san was their geographical origins. Uh, Karayuki-san came mostly from Kyushu area, uh, Nagasaki and Kumamoto prefecture, and Ameyuki-san are from eastern prefectures near Yokohama, uh, like Kanagawa and Shizuoka prefectures. Uh, how many women became American? Uh, it's hard to tell. Uh, they fluctuate in number, and after coming to America, they often moved uh, from town to town to escape uh, law enforcement. But around 1900, uh, Japanese consulates uh, did a survey on the number of Japanese prostitutes in the western states uh, from California to British Columbia. And in total, uh, about 400 were reported. Uh, but I think the actual number was probably much larger uh, because they most worked uh, clandestinely and some worked in restaurants as waitresses. And their numbers were not included probably uh, because they often reported their occupation as barmaids uh, to Japanese officials and waitresses to census takers. So I can only guess that uh, about 1,000 Japanese women were in, in some form of prostitution around 1900. 
And you mentioned that these Amiyuki-san or these women who come over to America are, in many cases are escaping heavy tax burdens. There's also you know, a lot of talk about overpopulation and we need to send people overseas to clear up more space in Japan. But what is it that, that really drove these women overseas to North America? And then which parts of North America did they go to? Uh, there are many reasons for these women to go overseas and North America. And it's hard to generalize. Uh, but based on my research, I can say that the basic factor uh, behind any reason they had was uh, economic. As I uh, uh, noted, uh, most Americans were daughters of peasants and they wanted to help their families financially. And I did some research on the background of Americans in my second chapter of my book. Uh, and uh, my finding is that uh, many of Americans first moved to Yokohama or other urban locations and worked as uh, servants, uh, factory hands. And at some point, they met uh, procurers who talked about nice things of America, job opportunities, or a chance to have American education, or marry rich landowners in California who turned out to be peasants or hired hands who forced them into prostitution. Uh, I also found that uh, not all women were unaware of what kinds of work they would do in their destinations. Some women had already sold sexual services to local foreigners in Yokohama, working as servants in the houses of Chinese merchants. Uh, others worked in brothels and dance halls, uh, catering to foreign sailors and merchants. And in that process, uh, they became uh, familiarized with foreigners and Western cultures, which influenced their decision to follow masters or procurers to the American West. So the reason why the origin of uh, Americans were concentrated in Kanagawa and Shizuoka prefectures had to do with this you know, existence of Yokohama, an international port city connected to North American ports through commercial, personal, and transportation networks. And where did they go after coming to North America? Uh, usually, uh, they first uh, landed uh, Canadian ports, uh, where regulation was more lax than American ports. And then some moved uh, you know, uh, inland uh, to mining towns in British Columbia, uh, but most crossed the border to come to Seattle. Some worked there, and others moved into the inland states of Montana, Idaho and Utah, uh, having laborers as customers in mines and railroad construction sites. And they also moved further down to West Coast cities of uh, San Francisco, Los Angeles. And in terms of customers, uh, they served uh, not only Japanese, but also other races, uh, especially the Chinese, because uh, the U.S. government stopped the migration of Chinese in 1882 and there were few Chinese women. So Japanese women served the needs of these Chinese single men, as well as Japanese and white laborers. That's really interesting that the women came over to Canada first, because they thought that was a more lax port. So does that mean there was a discrepancy in the way that local governments reacted to this immigration? Or can you talk a little bit about how the local governments reacted? What, what kind of policies were put in place 
regarding these immigrants? Did they try to keep them out or, or what exactly were the local governments doing? Uh, yes, uh, they did try to stop uh, the arrival of prostitutes uh, at the local, at the state level first. Uh, the Japanese government, uh, you know, the foreign ministry uh, were the first uh, institution that opposed these uh, women uh, when they found uh, scandalous newspaper reports on these women on the West Coast. They, they worried about Japan's reputation as a civilized country. Uh, so uh, they closely worked together with Japanese consuls in the West Coast to prevent their migration. But the local city governments in the West Coast cities, uh, West Coast, were not so eager to abolish Japanese prostitution because prostitution uh, actually helped local economy and it was considered necessary to keep the social order in these frontier towns with large numbers of young male workers. Uh, actually, Japanese officials uh, asked the local police to punish these pimps and prostitutes but they were slow to move or didn't take any action. Uh, and Japanese officials also hoped that the federal government uh, would punish them. And actually, there were U.S. federal immigration laws uh, prohibiting the immigration of Asian prostitutes. But Japanese uh, you know, procurers developed various strategies to circumvent these laws, uh, such as uh, coming by way of Canada, uh, using other people's passports or disguising themselves and women as married couples. So the federal rules were not so e effective. And local level, uh, within the Japanese community, uh, immigrant elites, uh, students and Christians had the same concerns about Japan's reputation. And they collaborated with consulate officials to punish pimps appealed to the local police, but they were not successful. And they didn't get the support of Japanese immigrants either, uh, because, you know, they are mostly at that time uh, laborers, and some of whom were, uh, for sure, the customers of Rodell's. And local Japanese uh, ethnic businesses were often connected to and financially supported by the work of American. So it was quite difficult to abolish prostitution or stop the entry of these women in this early stage of Japanese migration. So far we've talked about the kind of institutional or, or more structural conditions uh, about migration, but we haven't really talked about the women themselves. So could, could you tell us what was life like for these women who came over to North America? You, you mentioned that there were other Chinese migrants in, in North America already. So how did the conditions for these women compare to other Chinese? Or could you tell us a little bit about the conditions of the women themselves? Right. Uh, well, uh, it's, it's, it's hard for women to live as prostitutes of color in western frontier towns. Uh, the police didn't pay much attention to the brothel management, so Japanese women's lives were basically controlled by their masters or pimp husbands. And some women worked in hotel rooms as prostitutes serving Japanese, white, and Chinese men. Uh, others worked in restaurants as barmaids serving Japanese men. 
in the workplace, uh, Japanese women often suffered from uh, work-related losses, uh, such as violent treatment by masters or drunken customers, contracted venereal diseases while working, and their money stolen by customers. Uh, they couldn't speak English, and racism pre prevented them from seeking a job outside of Japan town. In terms of race relations, uh, Japanese, Japanese women worked along with various other racial groups, and there was a clear hierarchy among prostitutes. So, for instance, you know, white women at the top uh, charging the highest amount of, uh, for their service, and next, uh, foreign-born white, whites uh, like French and Irish, and then uh, women of color like Chinese, Japanese, and Latin women. Also, white women could refuse to serve Asian men, but Japanese women had little say in choosing who they would serve. Uh, also, uh, Japanese women often became the target of law enforcement, forced to pay fines for minor charges. Uh, in many senses, uh, they were more disadvantaged, disadvantaged than their white counterparts. But I think uh, the hardest part of Americans' lives was their isolation in both North American societies as well as the Japanese community. The local American and Canadian press uh, described Japanese prostitutes as, quote, slave girls, uh, declaring such practice of selling and buying of women as a sign of uh, Japanese people's inability to assimilate or adapt to Western moral standards. Uh, on the other hand, within the Japanese community, uh, Americans were attacked by fellow countrymen as shugyofu, uh, which means uh, women engaged in agri-trade. Uh, because of this, uh, their uh, socialization was limited, limited to customers uh, in the workplace and masters or pimp husbands. I mean, I mean it's, as you mentioned, it, it certainly sounds like a very challenging lifestyle, certainly a very challenging occupation where, where it's ostracized from the community, not getting any protection from the police. How did the women react to this? Did, did some of them try to leave the profession? Did they protest? Or, or how exactly did they react? Yes, they did uh, react. Uh, the most uh, common uh, and the surest way to leave the profession was to pay off the debts that they owed to their masters or husbands. But some women who met uh, boyfriends while working in brothels or restaurants uh, escaped without paying off the debts. Uh, we can see many such stories of uh, kakeochi, which means uh, elopement uh, in the Japanese immigrant press in West Coast cities. Uh, but in most cases, this type of elopement didn't work because husbands or masters, uh, with the help of extra-legal organizations, traced and forced these couples to repay the debts. It seems that uh, it was quite difficult uh, for women to protest working conditions individually uh, because they were tightly controlled by their masters. But I found a few cases of collective action by bummers against employers who got their wages or overworked them. But I think that this type of uh, collective action was rare in, in North America because it was risky. Uh, if they catch the attention of the police or federal officials, 
they could be arrested or even deported. Uh, interestingly, uh, that sort of collective action was more common among prostitutes and geisha in Japan in the same period. In Japan, prostitution and the geisha trade were officially acknowledged by the state and they had more strong, uh, strong consciousness as laborers. So, uh, in thinking about the responses of Japanese prostitutes in different regions, uh, it is important to think about the differences uh, in the attitude uh, of state governments and the society uh, toward the management of sexuality in national lives. And so if there were women who, let's say, got fed up with their lives as prostitutes, if they weren't able to buy their way out, and, and I, I'm sure there were cases where women decided, you know, I'm in America, I'm just going to run away or go somewhere else in America. Were there institutions within the community to help these women escape the occupation, escape the profession? Uh, yes, uh, there were uh, two major institutions uh, that helped these women. Uh, first, uh, Protestant rescue missions. Uh, these missions were increasing throughout Canada and the United States toward the end of the 19th century with the rise of uh, progressive reforms against various so-called vices in urban areas. And when Christian missionaries uh, noticed the presence of Chinese and Japanese prostitutes in the West Coast, they offered them a shelter and tried to convert them to Christianity. A famous such institution was so-called Cameron House, a Presbyterian mission in San Francisco, and one of the notable Japanese residents there was Yamada Waka, uh, who later became a a major figure in the famous Taisho feminist group Seito, the Blue Stocking, and later played a role in the movement for the protection of motherhood in pre-war Japan. But she used to work as a prostitute in Seattle and at some point escaped and turned to Cameron House, where she helped missionaries and rescue work. But it seems that her case was exceptional. Uh, both the Japanese women there were not so interested in Christian mission. Uh, they came to the house uh, primarily to have a shelter, protect them from abusive masters, or negotiate with their husband while staying there. And the other institution that helped these women was local civil courts. Uh, typically, uh, Japanese prostitutes and barmaids were married women controlled by pimp husbands. So some women who couldn't stand the treatment by husbands uh, filed for divorce from them. And in these divorce case files, uh, we can find uh, rich stories of these couples' experiences in Japan and North America. And in most cases, these women won the cases and were granted alimony and the right to their children if they had. These women were financially independent having enough money to hire lawyers, and they attacked their husband openly in the courts. I think uh, their assertive behavior provides a strong contrast to the conventional image of Japanese immigrant women uh, who faithfully supported the work of their husbands while caring for children and doing all household duties. Uh, probably, 
uh, as these women earned wages outside the home as either prostitutes and barmaids, they acquired a sense of independence, which was rare among Japanese women in this period. That's interesting to note that, you know, perhaps they had a little bit more independence, but there were these institutions that would help the women escape the occupation. Uh, you mentioned before that you, you made this kind of comparison between the Ameyuki-san and the Karayuki-san, and that, is, that would be Japanese prostitutes who go over to China. So can you compare those two? What, were there differences in the conditions for the women in North America as opposed to those in China or other places? Uh, it's not easy to compare and hard to generalize, but uh, one thing I can say is that uh, the North American conditions were very different from those in Korea and China, where the Japanese government exercised a strong control over these regions, especially after the Sino-Japanese War in the 1890s. Uh, in these Japanese territories, unlike in North America, uh, Japanese people, uh, including Karayuki-san, were the dominant racial or ethnic group. So in this colonial situation, although Karayuki-san was still looked down upon as a shugyofu, uh, they were sometimes assigned positive images by fellow countrymen, especially in relation to their contribution to the development of the Japanese empire. The work condition of prostitutes was also different in colonies uh, where the government implemented licensed prostitution and the women paid tax and had regular checkups. Uh, so I would say the conditions were more similar to those in Japan's pleasure quarters than to the conditions in North American frontier towns. And a key factor that shaped uh, Japanese prostitution in North America was the status of Japanese as a racial minority. Uh, as a ra you know, an ethnic minority, the Japanese had to be very careful not to cause any uh, Japanese feeling, uh, anti-Japanese feeling among white Americans and Canadians. So unlike in Japanese colonies or the metropole, uh, prostitutes were assigned quite negative images. In, addi in, in addition to that, uh, outside the Japanese community, uh, Japanese women were placed at the bottom of racial hierarchy. Uh, here, I'm not minimizing the hardships Japanese women experienced under licensed prostitution in Japan or its colonies. Uh, I just wanted to say that uh, uh, Ameyuki-san experienced particular hardships because of their status as prostitutes of color in the countries where no regulation exists and they had to live in shadow of law. And you mentioned it, it might be best to compare the conditions of the Ameyuki-san to the conditions of prostitutes in Japan in particular. I mean, we think about the 1890s and 1900s in Japan. This is a moment when there's a lot of movements promoted by women in Japan to end prostitution. And even in the U.S. as well, groups like the WCTU, uh, which is also active in Japan, uh, are, are very aggressively carrying out anti-prostitution campaigns. Is there a kind of 
interrelationship between these campaigns in Japan and North America, the presence of Japanese prostitutes in North America, is this impacting the way that prostitution is talked about in Japan? Uh, yes. Uh, well, uh, I would say anti-Japanese prostitution forces developed more or less simultaneously on both sides of the ocean in the late 19th century. In North America, uh, the first group who opposed Japanese prostitution was consulate officials who were concerned about Japan's reputation. They reported back to the Japanese government and the foreign ministry tried to stop migration of prostitutes. And at the local level, uh, Japanese Christians in the West Coast also had uh, you know, similar concerns about the international reputation of Japan, tried to punish or send these women and pimps back to Japan. And they also send letters back to fellow Christians in Japan. Uh, meanwhile, in Japan, uh, during the Meiji period, uh, anti-prostitution activists were, uh, like you said, uh, you know, Christians uh, and the educated uh, middle class who were sensitive to Western opinions about Japan. Uh, as soon as they noticed uh, scandalous uh, newspaper reports on Japanese prostitution on the West Coast, they started petitioning against it asking the Japanese government to prevent overseas migration of Japanese uh, prostitutes. Uh, so many exchanges were going on between Japan and the West Coast, and the two campaigns influenced one another and developed together. But over time, uh, this transnational network became weak after the turn of the century. Uh, Japanese immigrants began to settle uh, in America, uh, had families, and their concerns shifted uh, from Japan's reputation to their future in America or Canada. So uh, to prevent the growth of anti-Japanese feeling among local whites, uh, the Japanese, uh, not only Christians and immigrant elites, but also ordinary immigrants like farmers and store managers no longer tolerated the existence of brothels. And with the broad support of this Japanese community and changes in federal legislation, they could deport uh, prostitutes and pimps successfully. But meanwhile, in Japan, around the turn of the century, uh, anti-prostitution activists began to support uh, Japan's expansion overseas. Uh, during the war against uh, Russia, uh, Japanese Christian women uh, WCTU women sent back of a little comfort, uh, imonbukuro, uh, to soldiers in the battlefields. Uh, in Japan, they did continue to campaign against licensed brothels, but unlike in North America, public opinion was not strongly against prostitution. So as they became more integrated into so-called the apparatus of the nation-state, uh, their ties with North American activists uh, decreased. You mentioned that some of these women are deported as a result of these campaigns, but could you talk about what happens to these women as a result of this shift in perception of prostitution in North America? Uh, I couldn't find much information, unfortunately, about the fate of these prostitutes, but as far as my evidence suggests, uh, most uh, former prostitutes returned after the changes in legislation in 1910, uh, simply because there were uh, few opportunities and difficult to continue their 
trade. Uh, what happened to this woman after repatriation? I don't know much. Uh, little information uh, available, and it indicates that they returned to their original villages and lived quietly. Uh, some remained in North America, uh, changed their trade to barmaids in restaurants, or becoming managers of bar restaurants, uh, supervising younger women. And because barmaids could earn wage, uh, good wages, uh, they became financially independent and could raise their children by themselves. But from my findings, I know that a fair number of former prostitutes and barmaids married their boyfriends whom they met while working. Uh, of course, uh, these women not necessarily uh, ideal candidates for marriage partners, but in the Japanese community in the 1910s, there was a big demand for wives among single, single men, and the tendency to settle among immigrants uh, opened up opportunities for these women to get married, have children, and become legitimate members of the ethnic community. If they returned to Japan, they would be identified as former shugyofu or ameyuki-san. But as long as they are in America, you know, all Japanese immigrants, either former samurai, outcast people, prostitutes, were all together, you know, viewed as the Japanese, an ethnic minority. So I think there was a room for former, streets, former prostitutes to live in America and Canada. You know, but again, I had little information about this topic, so I hope to find more in the future. The Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.